This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. I've been thinking and wondering if I have recorded a podcast episode currently after one of the many mass shootings or school shootings that we have had in the United States. And I don't recall that I've done that, but I wanted to record one today just talking about and maybe offering a lens for us to look at this for those of us who are in favor of some you know, gun control or some sensible gun safety laws who are in favor of maybe doing something so that our children can go to school and come home at the end of the day, or that people who go grocery shopping on Sunday actually make a home with the groceries that they're purchasing. I'm recording this when we have had the shooting in Buffalo, New York at the grocery store. And then just a week or so, 10 days maybe after, that shooting, we had another school shooting, elementary school shooting this time, again, at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. And I don't know what it's going to take in order for us to protect those people who are just going about their daily life and have a right to continue living and to complete the task that they are currently doing instead of being shot by somebody who feels that they have a right to the gun of their choosing due to the second amendment. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I hear people, I talk to people who are, you know, very true to their second amendment rights. I'm not suggesting or proposing that we need to eliminate the second amendment. I am simply saying that Most of our constitutional rights have some restrictions. Um, You know, the right to free speech is not unlimited. We have decided that there are some things that you are not constitutionally allowed to do. For example, yell fire in a crowded place, in a movie theater, things like that. Like you can't do certain things because of your right to your constitutional right if it is going to harm or impact negatively other people. And so I'm not sure why we get stuck on this Second Amendment the way that we do in this country. You know, I I think there's a lot of factors around that. And, you know, for something that has a lot of public support, you know, raising the minimum age, you know, things like closing some of the loopholes that exist currently or requiring background checks, passing red flag laws, I don't understand why those steps are seen as not effective or that, you know, I don't understand politicians who will say after each shooting, now is not the time to talk about that. I think they are counting on the general public's ability to forget what has happened soon. And I I don't know that we forget it. I think it's very difficult for us to process and We are more comfortable to put it out of our mind and the way that, you know, news is structured currently with 24-7 news cycles, it's easy to get distracted on a different story because that really sits 
wrong with us, right? And we don't know how to have those conversations or to, you know, make effective change. And so I think we have a tendency to move on quick. Now, usually it's around three days that it's talked about and covered in the media, and then we move on. This one is, you know, showing to have a lasting power beyond the three days. And I hope that that means something different will happen. There has been some progress made in certain states after a school shooting, but not enough. And I think we need to have much more serious conversations. I think we need to be willing to sit with our own emotions instead of pushing them to the side and wanting to move on to something else because the thought of that, the thought of your children dying at school in violent ways, your the thought of you know your loved ones being at a concert and being shot or grocery shopping and being killed, that makes a lot of us very uncomfortable and we don't want to face the reality that that can happen. Now, I, I think an effective way maybe to look at this is through, you know, one of the exercises that we do with our clients that we kind of work them through and that most CSATs are trained to be able to work their clients effectively through this. I don't think it's something that just applies to addicts though. And this is taken from Dr. Carnes's workbook, Recovery Zone Volume 1. So there's Recovery Zone Volume 1 and there's a Recovery Zone Volume 2 that came out last year, I believe. And my opinion has always been, you know, while he talks about addiction in both Recovery Zone 1 and Recovery Zone 2, I do not think the materials in either of those workbooks are actually just uh, effective or necessary for addicts to work through. I think most of us need to work through these workbooks. I think there's a lot of valuable information that he writes about and that he covers and that he has you working in the exercises in the workbooks to get a deeper understanding of self and to increase your own awareness. And, you know, when we have an increased awareness, usually we're able to have more effective insight. So this comes from chapter five of Recovery Zone Volume One. And chapter five is called Naming the Demons. He talks about in this book, he starts out saying, in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Dr. Seuss pointed to how the Grinch's own childhood suffering drove him to be so mean-spirited. He was singled out, shamed for his differences, abandoned and hurt by those he trusted and loved. He withdrew and became obsessed with those whose thoughtlessness hurt him so deeply. His lifestyle and all that he did was organized around this original pain. Vengeance was the logical conclusion of his obsession. Now this wonderful tale, holiday tale, holds a deeper truth. Our grievances feed obsession. So let's talk about in this chapter, what we do is we start to understand our grievance stories, which all of us have. And then we start to dismantle that grievance story into a way that works us through it and leads to, like I was saying, more awareness, greater insight, and some personal healing. Now he talks about Joseph Campbell, who had fundamental insight into how stories were told and how stories were created. And he talked about how all the great stories held the same themes. He talked about how, you know, the hero or the heroine's journey was a journey that, you know, uh, the characters in movies were called into, kind of pulled into, 
and had to go through in order to transform themselves by facing their worst fears. And at the end of the story, right, as the hero or the heroine faces their worst fears, has to confront things about themselves, you know, he talked about how they eventually come out stronger and they are heroes and heroines for going through that transformation process and continuing on in the journey. Now, Dr. Carnes writes and says, villains, however, are almost always transformed into evil by their grievances. So heroes or heroines come about because they have to wrestle with and face their greatest fears and the internal struggles that they, you know, have, those demons that are kind of within us or that maybe we call it the negative critical voice. We have to face those things. And when we do so and we go on that journey, that hero or heroine's journey, we come out the other side a hero or a heroine in our own story, right? Maybe not to the whole world and everyone kind of has that journey to go through. But also, likewise, if we do not do that work, if we don't face that journey, if we don't face our fears and the internal demons that we wrestle and struggle with, then we end up with a grievance story that allows us to do things that maybe we wouldn't do otherwise and that that's maybe not who we are at the core of this human being, but because of our grievance story, we're able to become a villain and do things that negatively impact other people. He talks about, he says, for example, the character of Dracula is based on the true story of a prince who courageously fought for the church in the Crusades. When he returned and found his fiancée dead and the church he loved as central to her betrayal, he became the vicious monster of legend. Lord Voldemort, the evil wizard in the Harry Potter series, was betrayed at birth, lost his family, and was placed in an abusive orphanage. Voldemort's cruelty and ruthlessness was rooted in a profound conviction never to be vulnerable or to rely on anyone else again. Anakin Skywalker, the central character of the Star Wars saga, never met his father, was not readily accepted into the Jedi Order, and because of his devotion to duty, he felt his mother was tortured and killed. He became Darth Vader because of his perceptions of mistreatment by the Order, many of which were really misperceptions. For Anakin, some things were unfair. Other issues were simply an adolescent struggle with a world that was not the way he wanted it to be. Now, most of us have encountered that in our adolescent years. We start to recognize that the world in which we want it to be isn't the way we want it to be. It's not fair. It's not just all the time. And we, that's an adolescent struggle that most adolescents have to confront and work through. And that can take a long time to work through. However, in the story of Star Wars, the Emperor was able to play on Anakin's feelings of being misunderstood. He appealed to Anakin's adolescent feelings about acceptance by insinuating that the Jedi really didn't understand him. And at another point in the film, he suggested that the Jedi were actually afraid of Anakin's power and were holding him back. His whisperings mobilized Anakin's resentful perceptions. And then in a later movie, as Yoda was instructing young Luke Skywalker and cautioning him that the dark side would, could turn him or will turn him, he was clearly mindful of Luke's father, Darth Vader. 
Now, these stories are examples of unexamined grievances that can lead to trouble and can lead like it was in the Star Wars, how the Star Wars movies called it, that it can lead to the dark side. Psychologist Carl Jung talked about the dark side. He called it the shadow. And he described how the dark side of the self works when he said that we all have parts of ourselves that we wish to keep hidden. These might be mean-spirited thoughts or our lusts and desires, our hurt feelings and our personal wounds, our insecurities. The dark side is also the haven of our willfulness, you know, that, that kind of is captured in that refrain, I want what I want when I want it, where we can be quite self-centered and quite selfish. And we can, if that isn't examined, we can begin to act in ways that actually is harmful for us and it's harmful to those we come in contact with. He talked about how the dark feelings, the dark desires, or the shadow were often distorted by self-absorption and they could maintain their power because they were kept secret. Sometimes even from the individual themselves, right? But often from any other person outside of the individual. They were kept secret, which actually gave that shadow side or that dark side more power. And you talked about how, you know, when the shadow is hidden, whether it's from the individual or from others, its power increases. And that when we start to wrestle with and work through our shadow side, it's not about eliminating the shadow side, but it's about really understanding that, getting consultation on that, getting feedback on that, understanding that at a deeper level that then the shadow side becomes less dangerous to us and to other people. So by sharing our internal struggles, we can begin to heal from these hurts. We can start to see our own maybe self-indulgence or our self-centeredness. We can start to gain perspective from others about what's real. And as we start to explain these hidden thoughts, we usually gain important awareness and knowledge about ourselves. So our mental health depends on sharing our internal struggles. This is often what we do in therapy. Clients talk about these internal struggles. Sometimes when I'm you know, talking to new therapists, I'll say a lot of clients that are coming into therapy regardless of the reason they give us, right? You know, maybe they're coming in. For us, it's usually addiction, some type of behavior that's causing problems in their life. Maybe it's, you know, they're the partner of that individual and they've been negatively impacted. Kind of the term we use is betrayal trauma or they're, you know, caught up in this betrayal bond. It's usually what our clients are coming in with. But behind that, behind what they know about why they're coming in, is also often maybe what is not spoken, which is I need to understand why I am the way I am, which to me really goes back to, I don't know who I am. And so I've had these ways of coping, but they're not quite working anymore, or I'm running into trouble or other people are telling me this is a problem for me and I stand to lose something, right? That's usually what prompts people to reach out to us and start the process of getting help. So our mental health depends on beginning to understand and to share these struggles, these internal struggles. And so does recovery, recovery from addiction, recovery from trauma, 
recovery from whatever we're talking about, whatever experiences we've had in life, you know, relationship injuries, those types of things, that recovery also is dependent on sharing and talking about and understanding these internal struggles. Now, facing ourselves does require courage. Those things usually are kept hidden from us for a reason. I often tell clients, I mean, at some point it was too much for your psyche to handle. And so, you know, the decision was made. I mean, it probably wasn't a conscious decision, but the brain, the nervous system decided to just compartmentalize that, keep that kind of hidden. We're going to have maybe, maybe you understand the facts of what happened or you, you could recall the story, but the feelings that go along with that, oh, they're kept in a different compartment because having them together would be too much. And I often will say rule number one for the brain and the nervous system is protect the asset. Well, the asset is the person or the individual in which the brain and the nervous system resides. So if that's threatening to us as a kid, which often, you know, trauma or those relationship wounds, that relationship injuries or neglect that can happen to dependent kids, if that's part of our childhood, that's going to be a lot for us to handle. And so on some level, we, you know, again, I have a lot of clients who can talk about what happened to them, but their understanding of it or the meaning they make out of that or the feelings that what that felt like for them as a kid, that part is distorted. And, you know, it allowed them to survive, which is good. And it helped them to cope and get through to the next year and to the next year and into adulthood. But at some point we have to go back, right? I've talked about on my podcast before about the unfinished business. That's the unfinished business. So yeah, facing ourselves requires courage. Now, both Harry Potter and Luke Skywalker grew up without their parents and both ended up in difficult circumstances, such as facing Lord Voldemort and Darth Vader. But their stories became their transformation. They had to be fearless about their realities and they had to stare down their internal resentments. Life did not deal with them fairly and their stories didn't hinge on justice, but instead their stories were about challenge and how they were going to face that challenge and how that challenge then could transform them. So the essence of the hero or heroine's journey or the heroic journey is resilience. It's not about the challenge that we encounter, right? It's not about the challenge that we have to look in the face and decide to continue to lean in and face that challenge. It's about, you know, sure, sometimes we're going to get knocked down. Sometimes we're going to get the breath knocked out of us. But can I continue then to continue to face it? Can I allow myself to keep going through knowing I'm going to come out on the other side, right? That's really kind of what the essence of resilience is. Also, the core of recovery is also about resilience. In recovery, often we take something that has been bad and we transform it into something good, right? Often that recovery process is the process of taking suffering and making meaning of it. Now, each of us will face challenges that we cannot foresee. 
And sometimes they're very difficult. I work with a lot of clients who faced challenges that they didn't see coming and that they shouldn't have happened, right? It's, I mean, it's part of life that's unfair and bad things happen to good people and bad things happen to kids that never should. Those are really difficult things. Recovery is actually a training program in which we prepare for inevitable stress. We're going to need strategies. We're going to need skills. We're going to need an ability to endure and we're going to need a plan. Now, the other thing that I typically add is we're going to need some team support. You know, I I think of the recovery paradox of no one can do it for you, but you can't do it alone. We're going to need people who are supportive of us, who have worked on their own journey, have faced their own, you know, challenges, have kind of had to look themselves in the mirror and deal with the story that they've been running from. We're going to need them to know that we can make it through, that they made it through to inspire us, to guide us, to support us. But we also have to do these things ourselves. Now, I think the other thing, in addition to each of us having to face challenges that we're not able to foresee or that maybe we weren't really capable of getting through at the time, we're also going to have grievance stories. Everybody has a grievance story. So a grievance story, right? Maybe an example of a grievance story is some form of betrayal. You know, those that you love and that you depend on let you down significantly. Or maybe the person that you thought you knew turned out not to be the person that you knew. And there were some serious things that were kept hidden from you. Sometimes it's life that brings those grievance stories, right? I mean, when there is a mass shooting or a school shooting, we talk about the children who were killed and we should, right? We should read the names. We should look at the pictures. We should see pictures of their family and read what their family is saying. But often what we don't look at is the children who survived or, you know, the potential victims who actually made it through and are not deceased. Again, that's a challenge that they did not foresee. And it brings this reality of our world into their life that forever changes them. Now, I'm going to talk later in this episode, I want to talk about mental health and how, you know, often after a situation like this, you know, there's, I feel like it's empty rhetoric about, well, this is a mental health issue. Sure. Let's get mental health services, right? Again, that's part of giving us the strategies and the skills and the plan and the ability to endure. Yeah, we need those things. But usually how we do that, right, is we, I mean, I've, I've seen some of it now, like, you know, requests for volunteers to go to Texas and mental health, you know, volunteers to go to Texas and, and help out. And that's great. But this isn't going to be a two-week process, right? You can't ask people from other states or from other locations in Texas to drive down and help for a decade, which some of these kids, right, we have from the Newtown shooting, some of those kids who survived are now seniors in high school. We can look at, we know what they're saying. They, we know what they're saying about what happened in Uvalde. And it has been a long-term struggle for them. And many of them have, you know, in, endured 
mental health issues, panic attacks, PTSD symptoms for all of these years since that shooting happened at Sandy Hook Elementary. And we can't ask for volunteers to work with these individuals and these families for decades, which is what we need, right? So again, yes, we need to have the discussion about mental health, but we need to have that discussion in a way that actually gives survivors, gives families that are grieving the support that they need to get through such a traumatizing situation. And we also need it for individuals who have to uh, live with the reality that these things continue to happen. So again, those are some examples of grievance stories. The grievance story is a tale that we tell to comfort ourselves and to explain why something so painful happened. It can provide focus for our anger, reasons for our grief, and answers to our feelings of unworthiness. But most importantly, grievances feed our fears and allow them to become disproportionate. Now again, we can have grievances, but if our grievance is feeding our fears or you know, feeding our anger and we become more rageful and more resentful, that's not actually the direction that's going to help us or the action, it's not gonna lead us to the action that will bring about positive change. Because again, it allows our fears, it allows the grievance, it allows how we view ourselves and the world around us, it allows that to grow into a way that's disproportionate. You know, we might even disown our responsibility for causing or adding to our own pain. The grievance story, really what it does is it masks realities we do not wish to see in ourselves. So for example, you know, I try not to read some of the comments. Sometimes I, I do read the comments and I intentionally want to read the comments. It, it's nothing new happening in comments, right? I mean, there are some people who are making well-informed and thought out and uh, really good comments, right? But I don't know that comments is where the tough conversations and the productive conversations are actually happening. And I don't know that, you know, we're really changing minds in comment sections. But I think for people who get really wrapped up in this fear of the Second Amendment or their right to bear arms being taken away, I would take a guess, right? I don't know them. I'm not talking to them. Some of them I do know. Some of them I do talk to. But my guess is there's an unresolved grievance story that has kind of, again, warped their fear about their guns being taken away or their need to be protectors and their need to do that through also owning guns that are designed for war and are designed for a massive shooting. I, I think there's some fears behind that, maybe buried several layers deep that actually aren't getting addressed and instead the conversation continues to be about our right to bear arms which I just cannot fathom that our founding fathers, if you know they were able to transport themselves into our time period currently, that they would look around and say, yeah, yeah, this is exactly what we meant when we 
wrote that Second Amendment. This is what we thought about. This is what we uh, predicted. And we are absolutely okay with how that Second Amendment is being interpreted now. I just cannot fathom that that would be their reaction. And yet somehow we do, you know, or the talk or the leaders at the top who could make change, again, not all of them, but not enough of them, are having the conversation that says this is no way what was intended by this amendment written centuries ago. And so again, we have to look at like these grievance stories begin to mask the realities that we don't wish to see in ourselves, we don't wish to see in our family members, in our parents, in the story that we have behind us. Those things that were too much for us to you know, psychologically deal with at some point, which is true. But now we're able to, you know, comment on comment sections or buy guns. And we haven't actually worked through that grievance story. And I think what we see are people acting out their grievance story in all sorts of different ways. Definitely in ways that cost lives that should not be lost. But also in the way that we talk to people in comment sections, right? The name calling, the othering. Like again, I I think we cannot, we cannot look at this issue and make it simply a mental health issue. You know, sometimes when, when people will say to me, well, this is a mental health issue. You're a mental health professional. Don't you think this is a mental health issue? I'll say, well, I, I don't know, actually. Like, there are people, you know, who survive mass shootings, gunmen who survive mass shootings that, you know, they're looking at them now and no, there's not necessarily an overriding mental health diagnosis that we could give them. You know, with this one in Uvalde, maybe there were some things, but I don't know if we had enough uh, red flags or if people were aware enough about this shooter that it would have like triggered uh, red flag laws or something like that. I don't know if there was a history of mental illness with him, right? But what we do know is that there is not a mental health diagnosis for hate. There is not a mental health diagnosis for racism. There is not a mental health diagnosis for misogyny and sexism. There's not, I mean, we could argue that there's some diagnosis for entitlement, but that alone isn't a diagnosis, right? Or that being entitled and wanting what you want, that alone isn't going to trigger a mental health diagnosis. And I think when we look around our culture, you know, I think we have this tendency and it's, I think it's increased over my lifespan, I would think, you know, when I look back over the years, I I think we have this tendency to be able to kind of strip away another person's humanity and see them like when we other somebody, right? It's me versus you. And we have a lot of examples in history of doing this where the person who I see is different than me or who I've been told is different to me and is a threat to me, right? That somehow I start to see them as less of a person than I see myself. That's a problem. And we have had horrible things done when 
that plays out in our history or when people who also see others as that threat or as not being important or not being valued, when they're allowed to rise in power and make decisions and make policies or enact ways of behaving as a country or whatever it is, there's some horrible things that have been done. Horrible things, right? And I think that's what we are seeing in our country. We see these othering, whether it's political party, this political party versus that political party, and who you belong to, right? That somehow that is a threat to people who belong to the other side, right? We've seen this in history with religion. We've seen this definitely with the color of your skin. We've definitely seen this with gender. And all of that is not necessarily a mental health issue. Now, I think when we get these clients into therapy and if they stay and if they're honest and we can work through it and they're motivated to keep doing their own work and facing themselves and facing their challenges and facing their stories, then yeah, sometimes we do see improvements with that. Sometimes we do start to see more understanding for self, less hate for others, less hate for self, understanding that we all have struggles and challenges that we face and we have more in common than we actually have differences. That can happen, right? But we also work with clients, again, when we're working through grievance stories and it's difficult. Like one of the things that I find very difficult as a therapist, right? When I'm um, working with newer therapists, when I'm doing supervision or trainings with them, right? One of the things I say is we as mental health professionals have to say what other people stop short of saying in this person's life, right? Stop short of saying, or maybe they kind of like tiptoe around it. Or, you know, when this person says, oh, I have an appointment with a therapist and people in their life are like, oh, please therapist, say the things that maybe I am afraid to say, or I stop short of saying, or I say it, but that they won't listen to me. And so I I will say to client or to, you know, new therapists or even, you know, therapists that I work with who aren't necessarily new, but we're colleagues or we work together, I will say like, We can't not say those things. If we see those things, we have to say those things. And again, it's good to have the therapeutic relationship with the client. It goes better if they feel that we care for them, if our office has become a safe place for them and they're starting to open up and share things that, you know, they've never shared before. It's not surprising to me in a way like, oh, I haven't seen that before. I've seen it a lot in the years that I've been a mental health professional. But it, you know, just how often we have clients who will say, I've never said this out loud, or I've never told another person this. That happens a lot in therapy. And those are pivotal moments for clients when they get honest and say these things that they've never spoken out loud. First of all, Saying it out loud and hearing yourself say it is a different experience than just kind of keeping it in this abstract thought or I know these things happened, but I don't really talk about it. There's a difference when we start to talk and share and another person 
is witnessing that and hearing that and validating our, our feelings around that or at least starting to feel like, wow, that must have felt terrifying. You know, somebody else starts to give us the language that maybe maybe it was too much for us to have that language. Maybe it was too much for us to, again, know what those feelings were with the event that or the challenge that we experienced. Now, one of the sure signs of grievance distortion is entitlement. Again, I mentioned entitlement alone isn't going to get us any mental health diagnosis, right? Most mental health diagnoses have a list of, you know, seven, 10, sometimes more, and you have to meet three or you have to meet five or you have to meet you know, however many of these. And so it's not just a one check line item. And that means, or this one piece of information that we get equals this mental health diagnosis. Usually we, it's more complex than that. And we have to see this behavior in a couple of different avenues, right? We have to see it's this combined with this, combined with this, and it manifests like that. Then we can start to say, hey, this is looking like this diagnosis, right? But entitlement alone is not going to help us understand or arrive at a conclusion that says it is this mental health diagnosis. But we do know that, again, one of the sure signs of a grievance story that has been distorted is when entitlement shows up. And we see this a lot, right? We see people who can rationalize, justify, minimize their own behavior while also pointing to somebody else and increasing or, you know, saying, look at what they're doing while also, yes, I do this, but it's not that big of a deal or it's not harmful to anybody. You know, we, we see that a lot with addiction and with betrayal trauma and people who are dealing with significant complex PTSD. So Carnes writes, the legacy we need to face is our deep distrust of others and our willingness to violate privacy of others. Often that's what's going on in grievance stories, right? Is this grievance story allows us to face some of the realities or the impact of what our story did to us, right? Which a lot of times results in a deep distrust of others. Maybe it's, I don't trust any women, right? Most mass shooters tend to be male. I think it's like at 95, 96% of mass shooters are males. So I'm going to use the male pronoun. But most mass shooters, we know that misogyny or this inherent sexism is often something in common that mass shooters have. We do know that there are common traits and characteristics of mass shooters, one of them being male, another one being white. And You know, the average age is a little bit higher than what we would think it is with, you know, what has been happening maybe in the past five years. And so I think that that number, that average age, I think is like 33.4 or something like that. But, you know, that I'm, as we keep seeing these young ages of male mass shooters, I think we're going to start to see that average age start to decrease. And so we're able to, you know, compromise other people's rights, other people's privacy, other people's abilities and potentials. We feel like we're able to compromise that because of our grievance story and because of our own blindness to what happened in our story and how 
we arrived at these beliefs, this level of entitlement, this level of hate or division. Carnes writes, grievance scenarios are at their worst when the narratives are hidden in the recesses of the self. Often we are unaware of how powerful these grievances are since we've never let them see the light of day. So I wanted to write something. I don't know. I've t- I, I don't know if I've talked about Jackson Katz before. Jackson Katz is an American educator, a filmmaker, and an author. And he's created a gender violence prevention and education program that's used by U.S. military and various sporting organizations. And he's had a pretty rich career. I don't know if it's rich career. Maybe that's the wrong word. But he has spent his life and he has done a lot of work trying to advocate against men's violence. Um, He's the kind of the one that pointed out when we talk about violence against women, and you know, my mom was a school teacher, so sentence organization, language, that type of stuff. You know, my mom was always kind of trying to teach us that and improve that for us. And so, you know, when I hear people kind of talk about that, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what my mom would say. But he talked about how even in that statement, violence against women, he's like the subject of that line or that phrase is women, but they're not the ones committing violence against themselves, right? They're not the one to blame for violence being done to them. He's like, the missing part is men men's violence against women. We need to be talking about and talking to the people who are likely to be the perpetrators and not just talking to women or the victims. So after this latest shooting in Uvalde, he wrote on his social media, if you don't follow him, it's great to follow him. He has a lot of projects. And again, his website or his social media is where he'll talk about those things and post links to those things. So he talked about how he did an interview with Maria Shriver's popular Sunday paper newsletter. And he wrote, the massacre of 19 children and two adults in Uvalde by yet another disturbed and angry young man is such a horrific tragedy that it stands out even amidst the daily deadly toll of gun violence murders that occur in our sick and broken country. Nevertheless, it is still stunning to me that serious people in media fail to see or refuse to accept or acknowledge that these recurring tragedies are deeply rooted in obvious and complex connections and convergences between masculinities and violence. He says this is not a gender neutral issue. As people in the domestic and sexual violence movements have been saying for the past half century, along with feminist writers and activists around the world, So much of this is about gender, as is the debate about gun policy itself. He says, I have long argued that saying gun policy is so difficult to achieve because what is being debated is less about abstract understandings of constitutional rights and responsibilities and more about core issues of men's, especially, but not exclusively, white men's identities and sense of themselves as protectors. He says, until prominent voices in media, academia, podcasting, and publishing have the good sense to say these types of things out loud and then prompt a robust national conversation about them, we'll continue to lurch from one predictable tragedy 
to the next as we have now for decades. So I think, again, that's a different way of talking about what Dr. Carnes talks about, which is the grievance stories and how that shows up and how that gets played out in often very dangerous, deadly, reckless ways. So how do we dismantle the grievance story? Again, this is something that, you know, we work with pretty much all of our clients about understanding their story, addressing the grievances, and dismantling the grievance so that it boils down to the core emotion and we start to see that core self or those core wounds manifest in a way that leads more towards healing, that is more productive, and that leads to a better sense of self and connection with that authentic self. So usually, you know, we're writing down in this workbook, Recovery Zone Volume 2, it asks people working this, or we ask our clients to write down their grievances. Where have you been wronged? What stories do you go back to when you think of being wronged, when you think of injustice, when you think of unfairness in your life? Write those down. And let's describe what happened, right? And then let's talk about how did that impact you? And once we kind of have that list, now we're also looking for, are there common themes? Are, you know, are there common themes like Joseph Campbell talked about? Most stories follow common themes, whether it's resulting in a hero or a heroine emerging or a villain, there's common themes. And so we're asking our clients, what are the common themes that manifest or that we can see now that we've you know, written down your grievance story now that we've described what happened and we've talked about the emotions or the impact of that. Now let's look at common themes. Sometimes there's themes like I trusted too much or I ignored reality, right? I had this intuition or I had this gut feeling that I ignored and I stepped past that. And that is a common theme in the story. Maybe it's about, you know, I am my own worst enemy. I'm the one who is destructive to myself. Sure, maybe there's other people, but in the end, I take myself out of it. I'm the one that shuts the whole process down and sabotages myself, right? Sometimes those are common themes that we start to see. You know, with some clients, the common theme, it kind of goes along with trusting too much It's staying too long. I gave way too many second chances. When I had the evidence and I had the pattern and I knew this wasn't going to change and yet I kept staying. Um, A lot of times there might manifest fears that come up over and over again and kind of this shine away, backing down, refusing to actually face that fear, wrestle with it, and come out the other side. So once we have, you know, these common themes, we start to get the scripting. You know, I kind of call it the trauma scripting, but really what we're looking at is the scripting that keeps us stuck. The scripting that we run into time and time again from different angles at different ages, and we don't know how to move past that. And so we, we get stuck. So that's one of the things that we 
begin to see when we start to capture that grievance story and when we're looking and talking about it, we start to see, oh, here's the scripting that I keep running into that I don't myself know how to get past. I don't know how to work through that and transform myself from that. So that's the first thing that we start to recognize when we capture that grievance story. The second thing that we start to notice is, you know, usually, I mean, again, I work with adults and usually like not young, I don't work with a lot of young adults. I have some young adults on my caseload, but usually I'm working with them in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. I have, you know, a couple in their 60s. So at this point, when we're working through that grievance story, the other, the second thing that we really start to see and that becomes very clear is that the common denominator is themselves. And we start to see these defense mechanisms. At one point, they were coping strategies, right? Now they've become defense mechanisms. We start to really kind of see them. It's hard to deny these defense mechanisms. It's hard to deny the role that they play in continuing to be stuck or continuing to act out patterns from their story that are destructive. One of the things Carnes writes is once we have this, he says, we can no longer diffuse, confuse, or refuse the truth about our part in all of this. He says, once you have these basic stories or patterns in your life down, they help you identify your core issues. They become a window to your soul and the dark side can no longer hide. Now, after we've understood the grievances, we've described what happens or what did happen, we look at the emotional impact. We look at even how that continues to show up in their life today. We start to get some clarifying narratives right? These things like the trauma scripts come to be clear. The role that they play, how they typically respond at that point in the story also becomes very clear. Like I said, their their issues, those common themes, right? Like I trust too much or I stay too long or I sabotage. So once we have that down, we start to move from grievance into anger. Now, dismantling that grievance story, right? Usually one of the easier emotions that we can access or one of the first ones people will start to connect to is anger. Now, I I think some of that is because uh, anger maybe is a less vulnerable emotion than fear or terror or sadness and sorrow. But dismantling the grievance story allows us to access the anger, which is, I think, a necessary part of healing. We have to be angry about what did or didn't happen that should have happened, right? And so usually we start to construct with clients, like now we have this grievance story. Let's look at like, what are you actually angry about? Here's this story where you were betrayed or where you were let down in a way or that you were harmed, right? You were grieved. And In that story, what makes you angry? Let's not just have this grievance story that we're untapping, right? Or we're burying below all of these layers. Let's actually talk about what makes you angry. Um, You know, with some of my clients, one of the people that maybe they 
admire in their life or have a, you know, fondness for, they start to recognize like, oh, they played a part in this. And I've always given them a pass because of, you know, who they were or the role that they played in my life. I've always given them a pass and maybe pointed the finger at this person who sure had a part to play, but I refused to point the finger at this person and not, I wasn't angry with them. And now we're like, yeah, looks like anger at both is justified. Like they both let you down, right? So, you know, sometimes I will say, I think, you know, for kids, sometimes we needed to believe that we had one functional parent. So if we have a parent who is obviously dysfunctional, then the one who's at least less dysfunctional gets to be the good parent. And sometimes with the work that we're doing with clients, you know, later in life, when they're older, is they start to recognize that both parents played a part in this. There wasn't a good parent and a bad parent, which again, makes sense because usually, you know, healthy individuals don't really stay married to really dysfunctional people. That's not something they have a high tolerance for. And so we start to get that clarifying narrative and the pieces that we were missing or the people that we gave a pass to or looked beyond kind of what they did, right? So we start to compile this anger list. What are the things now that you know that make you angry? Now, again, anytime we're talking with anger, I, like I'm not one of those who believes that anger is bad or that we shouldn't feel anger, that somehow anger is wrong. I think we have to be mindful about how we act from that place of anger and we can't just act out our anger, which is like what, what I see happening when we're acting out that grievance story in usually destructive ways, reckless ways at the very least, you know, can we act on that anger rather than acting out that anger? So what does that look like, right? Maybe, and, and in the past, sometimes I, I see with clients, you know, I might say something and it's true. And maybe sometimes, a lot of times, I'm not trying to like hurt their feelings, right? Or I'm not trying to rattle them. But sometimes I think we're having a conversation in the session and I think we're both on the same page. And, you know, I've learned long ago just to check that out, just to make sure that like what I'm seeing is what you're seeing. And a lot of times, especially in the beginning of our work together, that's not the case. You know, they maybe were seeing this sliver of something and then I said it and they're kind of like, ouch, that was a lot to hear, right? And they might come back the next session and say, hey, what you said really upset me. And again, I'm not going to argue with them about how what I said is true, even though it might be true, right? I'm going to say, ah, I kind of wondered that. I'm glad you brought that up. Or I might check in with them and say, hey, at the end of the session, I said this and it looked like you weren't quite prepared for that or it looked like it landed in a way that you weren't prepared for. Let's talk about that. And so again, you know, I sometimes were given a truth that happens to me before where somebody who I trust and who kind of sees my story and knows my story says something that I wasn't prepared for. And it was, you know, the truth that I knew this was a step beyond that. Probably still true. I hadn't arrived there yet. And so sometimes that anger 
comes from a place of protecting our denial. It's not something I'm willing to see yet. And I get angry when people maybe say something about that or speak to me, right? This is sometimes where, you know, maybe people in their life have said something and the person gets angry, upset, maybe blames them or is like, how dare you? And again, we're going to have to develop this relationship with a client in order to say some of those things, right? Like I've worked with clients in the past and, and other therapists at my clinic have worked with clients from the past who, you know, are angry that they have never had a girlfriend. They're angry that they're not married, right? They're angry that they've never had sex with an actual person. And, you know, while there's some really, uh, probably some deep, sorrow around that and some relationship injury and relationship trauma, I'm also going to have to talk to them. You know, some of them I have, I have to talk about, like, let's talk about your personal hygiene and how often are you showering? How do you brush your teeth? Are you going to the dentist? Are you taking care of yourself? Right. Or are you just feeling that entitlement that I'm entitled to a girlfriend or I'm entitled to have sex and I'm overlooking the fact that I'm not caring for myself. I'm not making Mm. myself attractive physically, emotionally, right? If I'm angry about not having sex, that's really also not very emotionally attractive or relationally attractive. And so we have to look at like, here's the part that you play in this. Or, you know, with some clients, I might say like, hey, your reaction to things when you kind of hit the ceiling and maybe have a tendency to overreact, that's part of this dynamic that you're complaining about. And you complain about your partner withdrawing, but you also kind of become a little scary from what I'm hearing you describe or what I've heard your partner describe in our joint sessions. Sounds like you get a little bit scary sometimes. And sure, you're not meaning to do that. That's not your rational side. That's not how you are in your window of tolerance, but Do you think that has something to do with your partner withdrawing, right? We have to have those conversations so that they start to see the part that they play or the barrier they are themselves in them getting what they want or getting the things that would make them happy. So we have to start, you know, making that list of things that make you angry, not things that you're responding to in anger because you're protecting your denial and what is needed What action do you need to start practicing, right? Maybe it's speaking to those things and not yelling those things or being abusive when I speak those things, but I start to speak with some firmness, right? I start to really act from a place of boundaries and I create safety for myself and for others in my life by maintaining and acting from a place of my boundaries. Maybe I push myself to do the things that I've been avoiding or, you know, the the things that maybe I sabotage myself from accomplishing. I actually, you know, engage in a conversation with that sabotage part of myself and now I'm able to move past that. Sure, maybe that, you know, fearful part is is still there saying, oh, what about this? And what if you fail? And what about this? Right? But I know how to engage them. I know how to keep my focus on this long-standing goal that I've had while not ignoring the fear part, 
but I can engage with that part of myself that's very fearful and I can have compassion and understanding and not allow myself to shut down or again, get detoured from making the progress that I want to make. Now, most of us were raised in families where being nice, being compliant, being a good kid was what was expected. And important feelings like anger or distrust or feeling that things are not right, those things needed to be muffled. They needed to be minimized. Maybe our parents couldn't deal with those things. They hadn't dealt with them themselves and so they can't handle us having those emotions. And so again, our recovery here and the steps that we need to take once we've dismantled our grievance story, our recovery depends on our ability to create moments of truth and honesty and acting from those places of truth and honesty and understanding why I keep getting detoured or why I stay silent, why I expect behavior from other that is less than what I'm deserving of. And I start to act from that place of advocating for myself, protecting myself, having boundaries, speaking up when necessary, removing myself from harmful situations. Carnes writes that when anger shields denial, anger truly becomes madness. So think about when you've heard that word madness. At its root, Madness is almost always about losing touch with reality, living in illusion, or deliberately distorting reality. Now, we know that often with mass shooters, and unfortunately this is you know some of the fear that some of us have, is that mass shooters, there tends to be some contagion around mass shooters. And you know I, I think this time the media is getting it right, where there's less discussion or less coverage around the shooter and more coverage about the victim and more discussion about what needs to be done and you know the the support that many people feel for enacting some laws that can help decrease these incidents from happening but we also know that you know when one mass shooting happens another mass shooter is awakened right and starts to plan and they're not living in reality. They're living in an illusion and they might have this distorted reality of fame that they will receive by engaging in this destructive, violent act of shooting. And, you know, unfortunately, they have the means at their disposal to make that happen. And some of this we need to recognize there's some impulsiveness and some emotions that come on board um, with some intensity at these ages, or maybe they've been there all along, right? But now that they're young adults or if their parents you know, have guns, they have access to that, they know how to do that, they can plan and carry something out that you know, two years later, three years later, they might be in a different place if we had laws that hired the age, you know, that they needed to be able to buy the ammunition or buy, you know, assault rifles like this shooter in Uvalde did. So discerning between these moments of truth and moments of denial, right, really requires us to become an expert in self-observation. And we can't do that if we haven't faced the challenges or faced the story 
that is painful to us and that maybe is terrifying to us. When it happened, it was terrifying. And so we couldn't hold on to the whole picture of what happened. If we haven't faced that story and worked through that, then we're not going to be able to be an expert inner observer. Now, I want to talk just for a minute about mental health because again, this often is something that comes up when there's an incident of gun violence and there's a high number of casualties and victims. And often, you know, the discussion is something, especially with our political leaders, the discussion is this is not a gun issue, this is a mental health issue. And, you know, as a mental health professional, I'm always like, great, let's have a productive conversation about mental health because I don't believe that enough people have access to mental health who would truly benefit or be well served if they had access to mental health. And so I'm happy to have a discussion about mental health, but we need to let mental health professionals and mental health experts be the ones who lead those conversations. We can't let our politicians be the ones who have the conversation about mental health because what we know is nothing really gets done. There's not easier access to mental health. You know, I read an article, I think it was about a month ago, that was saying we have a shortage of mental health providers in this country. Now, on the conservative side, from what I read, the number was about 250,000 short of mental health providers in the country. That's on the very conservative side, right? Many people are saying we're really at about over 2 million short on mental health professionals to adequately meet the need of people who are seeking mental health services. Now, I was talking about this in our staff meeting this week, and you know, many of the therapists that I work with in staff meeting were saying, oh, two million seems a little conservative to me. And many, many mental health professionals right now are working a little bit above their comfort level. You know, we understand that there is a shortage and it's really difficult right now for clients to access mental health. And our world, you know, is a place where there's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, I, I think the pandemic kind of rattled people in a way where we're starting to see people who maybe never were going to come in for mental health services. And maybe they were going to be okay, you know, not great, but okay. They're starting to come in, you know, this, this kind of put them over the top. I think the pandemic and the length of the pandemic, you know, maybe what we used to use to cope, hanging out with friends, you know, getting together with loved ones, that wasn't really an option. Or, you know, it came with some risk. And so I think we're seeing people who would not have come before start to, you know, look for mental health providers. I think families are holding way more tension as, you know, parents are trying to um, fill in the gaps where schools are struggling and there's a teacher shortage. Then we've got things like Ukraine and, you know, when the threat of nuclear war that Russia was talking about, you know, that like that was scary. We, we've just got a lot going on. Then we have these, you know, shootings in elementary schools. There's just a lot for people to hold right now. And so there is an uptick, I think, in clients coming in and asking for mental health services. And it's making it difficult. And so most mental health professionals that I know have, you know, a little bit more than what they're comfortable with. And again, you know, we have to talk about, like, as a mental health professional, we're meeting with people every day of the week and we're hearing 
their trauma, we're hearing their tragedy, we're hearing their struggles, we're hearing their challenges, and we have to hold that. We feel that with them. We feel that or we wouldn't really be good mental health professionals. And so we have to be able to have some boundaries and be able to take care of ourselves and be able to, you know, show up for our family members and our loved ones. And, you know, we, we can't work at too high of an overcapacity or we're not going to be able to do our job effectively and we're going to be hitting burnout levels and that's going to you know, make the situation where there's a mental health shortage, that's only going to increase that. So I think mental health professionals are doing what they can. And I think there's a lot of great people who maybe they don't have the access to schooling and are hesitant to take on student loans for valid reasons who, you know, could become mental health professionals and could really contribute to the field in positive ways and step in and start to fill the spaces in that shortage, but they're not able to go to school or they're not able to do what they need to, to be able to become a mental health professional. So I think that's a situation we need to talk about. You know, most mental health professionals coming out of school when they graduate, graduate into a system where they're seeking full licensure. It varies in different states about how many hours they have to work under supervision in order to get fully licensed. On average, it takes about two years. In Utah, it was 4,000 hours. I think that just decreased at the beginning of this year or the end of last year to 3,000 hours. But you know, there's times that they have to work under supervision in order to become fully licensed. And a lot of those jobs that they graduate into have very high caseloads and quite low pay for somebody who has a master's degree and is required to continue their education after graduation in order to become a really skilled clinician. And I just don't know that we can do therapy when we have a caseload of 50. There's no way you're doing therapy, right? You're doing case manager. Maybe you're helping people, but you can't hold that much emotion in a week. There's just no way you're going to be limited in how effective you can be with your clients if that is the expectation placed by you know your employers or the government if you're working at county or state facilities as a mental health provider. And so I think we have to have that piece of the conversation as well. We can expect mental health professionals where there is a high number of shortage to fill in the gap and fix this issue that we don't actually have the authority maybe to enact the laws or to change things that would help us more effectively do our job. So there's some discussions we need to have around mental health. I am all in favor of that. I am not in favor of people who are not in the field and who are not experts in mental health leading or only being the ones who have those conversations about mental health. Now, as I talk about, you know, working through and dismantling the grievance story, connecting it to the emotions, again, anger is usually the easier accessed emotion, but behind that is usually also fear, terror, deep sorrow, sadness. That's what's behind some of that trauma and those relationship wounds and injuries that many of us deal with far too young before we're really able or have the 
resiliency skills on board or the support that we need to deal with something like that. And so I wanted to be able to do this podcast. I wanted to talk about how we work through grievances and how we move grievances into really the core emotions, right? That probably are sadness, fear, shame, anger, those emotions, you know, really kind of have to be addressed in a way where the grievance is dismantled. Those core emotions are actually able to come on board and be felt. And the person is able to not just move into healing, right? Because usually there is a significant space in which we're just feeling that. And we are validating that and we are saying what needed to be said but couldn't be said. We're feeling what we needed to feel, but we couldn't feel at the level we needed to. That is an important part of healing and often some of the uncomfortable parts, what leads to healing. So I wanted to talk to, you know, when I moved out and went to college after I graduated from high school. So my first year of college, my last um, quarter of that year, I had an English class from him. And, you know, he went on to become a, a really valuable mentor in my life and he had a lot of influence over me at a time where you know I, I mean I just think about 18 19 we're so impressionable again we're so impressionable and we're stepping out into the world in a way that we haven't previously and I'm so grateful for meeting him and the role that he played in my life and what he stepped into you know I don't know why he decided to step into my life at that point or what he saw I know some of what he saw because he told me, right? But I don't know why he saw that and stepped into my life in the way that he did. And I don't know that he had done that. I mean, at least when he was in my life, I don't know that he was doing that with other students. You know, probably he had done that before. And unfortunately, he passed away when I was in graduate school. Um, I had kind of kept in contact after I graduated with my bachelor's degree and had moved away for my master's program. And his wife wrote me a little note and let me know that he had passed away and he died young. I'm sad that he was gone too young because he was a impactful person and a man that I have deep respect and gratitude for. And so I ended up taking all of the classes that he taught at the college I was at, except German, he taught German. And I just have a really difficult time learning languages uh, besides the one I was born into. And so I stopped short of taking the German classes, but any other class that he taught, I took. And I also spent a lot of time in between classes talking with him or talking about papers I was writing for other classes and what I was learning. And, you know, he would introduce me to essays or articles and we and ideas and we would talk about them, right? And he would ask me questions and I didn't always know. Oftentimes he was asking me questions I hadn't heard before, right? Or I hadn't thought of yet. And he really shaped my life in that way. And I enjoyed discussing it. And I enjoyed the questions that he raised with me. But one of those questions that he talked to me about, right? Or one of the things that he said to me one time is he said, you know, the greatest question of all time is who are you? And what lengths are you willing to go to to be that person? And at the core of that, right, I think about that in my work with clients. I think about who are they, right? And 
what lengths are they willing to go to to be that person? Now, again, a lot of my clients work long-term with me and you know we're talking five, six years. They're going to some pretty great lengths to discover who they are and to be that person. And a lot of that is because the person that they have been, the person who had to cope far too young, who has defense mechanisms that are getting in the way of them actually reaching their potential, that's not working for them anymore, right? So they're willing to go to some pretty significant lengths to figure out who they are and to be that person, to be able to be that person, not just for a little bit of time, but permanently to transform into the person that they at their core are. And so behind that question that he asked me is what are we willing to fight for? I think that's a question we have to be wrestling with and we have to be talking about in instances after mass shootings, before another mass shooting, we have to be talking about what is worth fighting for, what is truly important. And I think answering these questions and engaging in these conversations, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. We have to be willing to engage in difficult conversations where maybe we don't have the solution yet, but having the conversation is an important part at arriving at the solution that's going to work. And answering these questions helps distill our values. And when we start to describe what it looks like when we're acting from a place of our values, when we're acting from that core self or that authentic self, what does that look like? How do we honor who we are? Because that's part of going to that length to be that person, right? How am I honoring that? And that's part of transforming this grievance story into action that has a positive impact, that leaves a mark on people without taking away their lives or without instilling fear and terror in people, but instead leaves them feeling touched, leaves them feeling inspired, leaves them feeling a connection that they didn't have before we had a conversation with them or we showed up for them. Again, I think we have to, you know, at the root of some of our problems, I think the answer, I don't know the details of this, but I think the answer is we have to start showing up better and we have to show up time and time again. We have to show up for ourselves. We have to show up for those people in our lives or those people that we come across throughout our day in a way that brings out our humanity and in a way that manifests our core self. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that this story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter of your story. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.